This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. How big is the problem? That is something that we've been grappling with the last couple of years. We know that there's been money laundering going on in BC, but how big is it? We've been hearing about the luxury car market, horse racing, casinos, but that big question really had to do with real estate in this province. You know, back in 2015 and 2016, when it seemed like the housing market was just going crazy, I think a lot of us had that feeling like, there's something else going on here. Like, this doesn't make sense. There was, it was un, it was irrational what was happening, the way people were snapping up places and, and you had to wonder, where is this money coming from? That's why today is so significant. Attorney General David Eby is going to be releasing the full uh, Dr. Peter German report on money laundering and its involvement potentially in the real estate sector. And it's a big report. It's in excess of 200 pages. And at the same time, there's going to be a Ministry of Finance report coming coming out as well. Uh, They tasked uh, Maureen Maloney with looking at the impact this has had on BC's uh, financial situation as well. So we're going to get some numbers today about how much money laundering has been linked to the finances of British Columbia. This is the big stuff. They've been working on this for months and months. So that's going to be live over the noon hour, and we'll have that press conference for you. But it does lead us to our hot question of the day today. Based on what you know so far about money laundering in BC, all the things that you have heard, would you at this point support a taxpayer-funded public inquiry on this topic? Do you say, yes, it is worth it. We need to know. Or do you think, no, we don't need it. We're already getting all these answers to all these questions with these reports. Let me know how you feel about this. One, you can use our buzz line to call us, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. And, and let me know how you feel about this, pros and cons on this issue. Uh, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. And then, of course, you can vote online. You can find it at simisara980 on Twitter or at cknw. That's just our cknw Twitter account. And cast your vote there. Dozens of people already have since we put this up about 20 minutes or so. And 65% of people are saying that, yes, they would support a taxpayer-funded public inquiry. It's worth it. 35% right now saying that, no, it's not needed. So where do you come down on this issue? Let me know because you know what? In the past, when we've, it's kind of been passed off by politicians saying, nah, not appropriate right now, not appropriate right now. We know that the government is going to make a decision on this, yes or no, in the next couple of weeks. So keeping up the public pressure, if you want a public inquiry, is pretty critical right now. So let us know if you think this is something BC needs to do. Well, the big story that we're going to be talking about today has to do with the impact of money laundering in this province. And it's going to be busy. So we thought, let's get a preview of what we expect to hear and how this is all going to be rolled out. So joining us now is Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. You guys are going to be busy today. Yes, <laughs> we are going to be busy today. That, that's a fact. All right. How is this going to roll out? Yeah, so we're going to get a technical briefing starting very soon. The provincial government will show us the two reports that were conducted looking into money laundering uh, in the housing market. Uh, Peter German uh, did an extensive report on money laundering in the housing market, uh, horse race tracks, as well as luxury cars. We've already seen uh, the parts on the horse racing as well as luxury cars. This is the big one. Uh, So he's going to lay out 
what has been found in terms of uh, problems uh, with laundering in the housing market. There's another report that was done by Maureen Maloney and a team, uh, three experts who were put in, it's a fi- Ministry of Finance report that was looking at the financial impacts of money laundering on the housing market. And we expect it is going to be a doozy and that it will come with some pretty serious changes from the provincial government in terms of monitoring and regulations. Uh, but a big part of this as well is working with the federal government. And I'm guessing we'll hear that there were some real challenges with enforcement around the federal government being able to stop uh, widespread money laundering uh, in uh, Metro Vancouver and British Columbia's housing market. Okay, so what have you heard? Like, What might we be expecting to hear? We have heard that... If the German report is a 7 out of 10 on the, wow, I can't believe this is happening meter, uh, the Maloney report is a 14 out of 10. Oh. Uh, so we have, you know, seen these reports come in from Peter German, and I think people look at them, and they've seen Sam Cooper's reporting, and they've seen John Waz reporting, and mm-hmm. they've heard my reporting, and they know what's going on. They still see those reports and say, wow. I think people are going to say, wow, after they see this. I think what we're going to get a sense of is that criminals were using proceeds of crime, allegations, buying houses, and that had an impact on the overall market. So imagine this, Simi. Somebody comes in to try to launder money and they have infinite funds and a home is listed for $1.2 million and they buy it for $1.5 million. All of a sudden, every home in that neighborhood is now worth $1.5 million because of the comps. And that obviously has a serious impact. And if we see this happening time and time again, I think we may be able to finger point at least a small part of the reason why we've seen these housing prices explode. Clearly, there are lots of other issues for our housing crisis in Metro Vancouver. But if criminal proceeds is just a small part of that, it no doubt will raise a lot of concerns from the public. Yeah, I mean, I saw that happen in my neighborhood over and over and over. Over a period of six months, there was one house a couple doors down from me that sold three times. Right. Uh, And just for more and more every single time. Like, I think we know there was craziness. Now, given how big we expect this to be, Richard, do you think that has contributed to the change in tone that we've heard from the provincial government regards to a public inquiry? Because whereas before they were kind of, no, we don't really need this. All of a sudden in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten this sense that it's become a very real possibility. I think it more has to do with the public. And the public has been writing, calling, visiting MLA's offices, demanding that we have accountability. These reports are not going to point fingers. They will suggest solutions. They will tell us stories. They will not place blame. They will not place blame on the criminals. They will not place blame on, you know, those who allowed the transactions to take place. No blame will be on the provincial government, the federal government. What the public wants is people to be held accountable for money laundering in casinos, in luxury cars, and in the housing market. And people have been calling for it. I think cabinet hears that. I think there are a number of people around that cabinet table who have a lot of constituents saying, we need this and you have to deliver for us as British Columbians. And I think that's where the change has come from. I don't expect that decision on a public inquiry today. 
but David Eby told me yesterday it could be soon. So cabinet has these reports in front of them. They are assessing them. They are trying to determine is an inquiry the best way to deal with this. And one right. thing, Simi, quickly that stood out to me okay. is the two of the biggest advocates for the public inquiry in Metro Vancouver are Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West and Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle. And the reason they're important is because Brad West is close friends with Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister. I think Farnworth trusts his judgment and Christine Boyle, David Eby, the attorney general, was a big supporter of her city council bid. Again, I think David Eby trusts her judgment. You know, I think hearing from high profile local politicians who are just getting into politics. And who are also to have closer pe- to people, right? Exactly. Like hear more from the people. Yeah. And to have people around the cabinet table who trust them, I think that is going to um, inform the discussions that are happening around the cabinet table. Does the Maloney report, so did that collect yeah. information from within the government? Like, is, it last, is that where a lot of the financial information is coming from? Yeah, so let me just quickly read to you from the mandate of that report. Okay. And it, it came from public submissions, existing legislative frameworks, best practices in other jurisdictions, and work that's currently underway by the government to prevent money laundering in real estate. So they took those multiple facets and made an assessment about what had happened and what can happen going forward in terms of closing potential loopholes uh, that would have allowed large transactions to take place without a whole lot of accountability that, you know, real estate agents or brokers or others were not able to spot effectively criminal behavior. How can they give those real estate boards the power to do it? The Real Estate Association of BC has come out in advance and, and submitted a number of uh, suggestions for what can be done. I think that's just one step. And no doubt the government has seen that letter and those will be part of the uh, recommendations that will be uh, uh, come forward that will become public in, in an hour and a half from now. Okay. So how long are you going to be spending at the technical briefing? It sounds like they're going to walk you through quite a bit of stuff. Yeah. So we'll get to look through the entirety of both reports and uh, chat with the authors of both reports. Reports, uh, and then that will allow us to, uh, you know, inform our reporting. So right at twelve ten, we'll have something up uh, on the website, uh, and then we can uh, go from there in terms of how we get the information to the public. But you know, our jobs is to ensure that the public can look through these reports as well, yeah, and and see what's happening here. So we'll work our way through the reports over the next hour, uh, and then that information will be available to the public, and no doubt we'll, you know, immediately after. Uh, we'll hear from David Eby and Carol James uh, in terms of the political reaction. All but right. we want to make sure that all the listeners out there know what are in these reports, what the impact has been on their lives and what the government is doing to fix it. And then that larger question of, is the inquiry needed and when may a decision on that come? Absolutely. Okay, thanks, Richard. Thanks, Simi. My pleasure as always. That's Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. You know, for years, we have been hearing about the problems. Renters say bad landlords are the issue. Landlords, meanwhile, say it's the bad tenants who are causing all the problems. And when the housing market is as tight as it has been, and the rental market is too, tensions have been high between these two sides. Well, the NDP government had put together a rental housing task force, and yesterday they announced some substantial changes that the minister says is aimed at improving security and fairness. Things like better rules around rent evictions and a new compliance and enforcement unit within the residential tenancy branch to investigate complaints and even take action against serious offenders, whether they are landlords or renters. Here's the minister, Selena Robinson. The unit is now investigating complaints and taking action against landlords and renters who are repeat or serious offenders. 
When we hear about renters uh, receiving five, six, seven eviction notices or a building full of renters being evicted for cosmetic upgrades, those landlords can absolutely expect to hear from the unit. Or when we hear about renters who scam landlords out of months of free rent and then move on to the next landlord, those renters can expect a call as well. We are taking situations like these very seriously and the new team will be sending a clear message that renters and landlords need to follow the law because we have to protect people. That's the housing minister, Selena Robinson. Now, there are some who think that this is a kind of sidestep or a side issue from what is actually needed. Vancouver Tenant Union's Elliot Galan says that in a market where landlords have more capital than renters, slapping property owners with a $5,000 fine, he says, may not be enough. I think we need to look at much stronger measures uh, like expropriating property from the worst landlords. Ooh, that would be, uh, I would guess, a pretty unpopular measure, particularly among landlords. So let's find out how landlords feel about all of this. They are represented by David Hutniak, the CEO of Landlord BC, who joins us now. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Let's discuss some of these changes that are being proposed by the provincial government yesterday. What are your thoughts on them? Well, I mean, I, uh, the uh, recommendations were, I guess there were 23 of them in total. So it's uh, a pretty, uh, you know, ambitious goals uh, outlined in the, by the task force. And clearly it's going to take some time for the province, the Minister of Housing to, uh, you know, get through this. But it, uh, I think what they've done uh, through this uh, announcement yesterday is, is really, really good. Um, you know, what's really important here from our perspective uh, was the additional guidance that they're going to provide uh, landlords and renters around uh, uh, renovations, uh, what uh, their respective rights and responsibilities are there, uh, the setting up of the, uh, I guess, liaison um, uh, within RTB for municipalities uh, that they can uh, connect with to understand the RTA in that context. Uh, you know, we're seeing some bylaw changes in different municipalities that I think are at cross purposes with the RTA and frankly outside the jurisdiction of the municipality. So I think that's going to be a really good, uh, good step uh, as well. And, and certainly there's a, you know, a few other things, uh, the enforcement, the compliance unit as well. This is something that was announced when uh, the minister mm-hmm. provided additional funding. Uh, you know, we were, we're strong supporters of that. Uh, we're really glad to see that, uh, you know, they, it's staffed and they're, and they're starting their work and we're, we're looking forward to good re- results from that. Right. And how, what is your understanding of how that's going to work then? And this applies to both landlords and to renters who can uh, what make complaints about uh, the other landlord or the other renter and have that investigated? Yeah, absolutely. What they're looking for, and again, this is something we've long uh, suggested. You know, in BC, the Residential Tenancy Act uh, is is actually you know a good piece of legislation in terms of uh, tenancy legislation. It's probably the best uh, across Canada. And but uh, you know, the pr- problem has been that you know, so we have these these uh, robust laws, but they haven't really necessarily been enforced uh, to the full extent of the law. So there hasn't been uh, necessarily the consequences for, uh, you know, the few bad apples that uh, may exist, and that's both from a renter and landlord perspective. So, so I think uh, the, you know, and, and I'm confident, in fact, that the end result here is that, uh, you know, when by doing the work they're going to do through this compliance unit, 
it's going to really, uh, you know, make, uh, uh, you know, again, that small cohort of, of, uh, of landlords and renters who don't respect the law um, more aware of, of the consequences. And that's going to only, uh, you know, have good, uh, good messaging for everybody out there. So I, I'm really optimistic this is going to work well. Do you think that's kind of what's been missing up until now? Is it, and I've heard this time and time again from both sides of this, is that there's no follow through, right? You have somebody who's clearly blatantly broken the rules, but there's no way to get them to pay up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where it's particularly frustrating for both parties uh, is the repeat offenders. And, you know, that's, you know, something that we've always been really frustrated with. And both from a landlord and, and renter perspective, I mean, you know, the landlords who are repeat offenders, they harm our industry and uh, obviously, you know, are harming our renters. And, you know, that's just not uh, anything that we're particularly excited about. I mean, we want we want the law to be enforced, and certainly, like I said, the repeat offenders on both uh, both sides here need to suffer consequences. Uh, and wh- how do landlords feel about the potential for rules about renovations? That's always that's been a hot topic. Well, I mean, again, the Residential Tenancy Act is actually pretty clear right now, and, and then there were some enhancements made last May. It it it. You know, it's pretty clear for landlords about uh, the process here and and the fact that, you know, uh, vacant possession, which is, you know, emptying the building, is largely the exception versus the rule. And uh, I think this is where the, the clarification that they're, they're going to be uh, providing, additional clarification, is going to be really important. The Act actually pr- protects both parties here and, and delineates what their rights and responsibilities are. Uh, it just hasn't been, I think, communicated as well as it could be. So, you know, I think uh, landlords, if they don't understand the act, they need to become more familiar with it uh, specific to uh, renovations and you know that part of the right. act. But also maybe they were very familiar with it, they just didn't care because, as you were saying, there was no real enforcement on some of these issues up until now. Well, you know, I, there's obviously been a few highly publicized uh, situations uh, that, uh, you know, made, made the media. I don't know. I mean, we as an organization have been very uh, clear that, uh, you know, we uh, do not uh, uh, view vacant possession of a, of a rental building as as uh, sort of the uh, the uh, immediate uh, way to approach these situations that we 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 agree basically with the legislation that it's more an exception versus the rule and so you know yeah i think this is going to be good messaging uh, for everybody uh, and uh, again, we'll have to see how how it unfolds but i, th- I think it's going to have a positive outcome at the end of the day so right now for landlords then david how do they check like if is there a database of of renters is there like a place to check if there is a problem person that you just want to see okay has this person had any issues in the past is there any place a landlord can go to fix that and conversely can renters do that no 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 there isn't for landlords uh and frankly you know there'd be huge privacy issues it's not something that we would even support to be honest with you uh, you know, landlords have a whole range of uh, uh, due diligence and, and tenant screening processes available to them, credit checks, and and within that context, uh, you know, some information in regard to, uh, you know, tenant pay habits, et cetera. But, uh, you know, uh, a bad tenant database is not something that that is, uh, you know, on the horizon. And, and like I said, there's huge privacy issues around that. In terms of landlords, I mean, Again, you know, it's up to the individual to do due diligence. Uh, there's, 
you know, certainly uh, online there's a, a lot of information. I'm not suggesting it's all necessarily accurate, but, you know, you deal with reputable um, uh, uh, licensed property managers. You know, that's going to help you. Uh, certainly we have our landlord registry for, you know, the smaller landlords that have enrolled in it. That's a, that's a good sign that, uh, you know, there's a more more responsible and competent right. landlord. Uh, so, so there are tools here, but uh, <clears throat> I think, again, going back to the compliance unit and its objective, you know, they have um, the right uh, or, and, and plans, frankly, to, you know, to disclose names. Uh, and, I mean, I, I think they're going to be careful with that, but that, I think, is uh, incre- uh, you know, an important part of it. So we'll see how that unfolds. Uh, so we're going to have ensure that both parties have consequences if they're repeat offenders. And at some point in time, they're going to suffer pro- prosecution and, and, and fines. And then once that gets into the public domain, I think, I think it's going to have a positive uh, impact, uh, you know, across the board. So, but we'll see. I mean, this is going to take some time to, to unfold. All right. Well, David, thank you for your time on this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's David Hutniak, the CEO of Landlord BC, talking about the changes that are coming and including, I think probably the most significant here is this compliance and enforcement units. Oh, it is Mayor's Day today on the show. My co-host is, well, it's just so many different titles. She's an entrepreneur, a master of making pies, a longtime counselor for the city of Port Moody. She's been serving residents there since 1996, and now she's the acting mayor. So, Megan Lottie, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me here. I guess you didn't really expect it was going to be such a big news day. No, it seems like the news cycle is being, uh, I guess, overtaken by by some important stuff. You could say that, yeah. yes. But, of course, we're still going to make sure that we have lots of time to uh, talk to you. How do you feel about this? Because this is not normally part of your job. No, I mean, I, taking on this this role has um, increased my workload uh, in this area probably tenfold. So oh, wow. this is one of those things that I never envisioned I'd be doing. You never wanted, you never aspired to maybe run for mayor, not on your radar? No, yeah, of course. I, I've thought about it. But yeah. you just didn't think you'd end up acting. How long are you doing the job for? Uh, just until the end of June. Yeah. And so how's that going to work? Is it going to be rotating through different counselors? Yes, we actually drew names. Uh, so I'm, I got the first, the first job, first job. And then, uh, counselor Madsen will be June to, I think, or July to September. And then counselor Milani will be, uh, October through to December. And for however long this. Yeah. I mean, we, at this point, we don't know what, how long this is going to last, but we've, we've made some decisions until the end of this year. And then I guess we'll have to revisit that right. later on. And just for people who don't know, that is because that the uh, mayor of Port Moody, Rob Vagramov, is currently on leave dealing with criminal charges. And so I think pretty fair that you guys drew the names out of the hat. Yeah, that was that was a decision that I made um, on the fly. I was I was chairing the meeting, <laughs> and it didn't look like we were going to get to any consensus. So uh, you know, for me, it's really important that we that we really come together as a council. So I thought that was the the fairest way to to sort of take it out of pol- politics and just right. create a fair. And how's the job been? Like I said, it's been extremely busy, but I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, there's been a lot. I've I've met with a lot of residents. I've I've attended a lot of um, events on behalf of the city and. 
and gone to a lot of meetings. I was also appointed uh, the ch- to the mayor's council, so that for, for TransLink. So that's been really interesting. A uh, lot, lot to learn there. But unfortunately, you've also had to put put your company on hiatus. Yes. Oh. What a day, Megan Lottie, the acting mayor of Port Moody, picked to come and join us for a couple of hours. <laughs> You're like a regular news person now, jumping right in there. I know. <laughs> Are you enjoying yourself? I am. Good. Uh, what did you think of what we heard? Like we heard David Eby, the attorney general, there t- um, using some examples. And so, just to recap some of the ones that he uh, pointed out. Uh, a student, somebody who's listed their occupation as a student who purchased 15 units in one condo building worth $29 million. <laughs> a homemaker, that was the occupation, who bought five luxury homes worth $21 million. Like, what do you think when you hear that? Well, I, what really came across to me was the fact that Mr. Eby identified how easy it was for for uh, Mr. German to actually come up with those with yeah. those with those numbers, it's like without having any really confidential to, information. Exactly, yeah. you didn't have to scratch the surface very deeply to get to to get to the problem. So uh, when they talk about the impact on affordability, has that been felt in Port Moody? Like, oh, what's affordability like there? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I mean, just we are a um, you know we we are quickly becoming a very unaffordable community. So we're working hard at the city to to bring in policies to uh, attract more affordable housing. But absolutely, there are homes that have been built in Port Moody that um, would that sit empty, and they're multi million dollar homes that that no one can live in. So, I mean, obviously you're taking away space for people to live. So you've got the empty homes problem too. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Is yeah, it, and it, in all neighborhoods in Port Moody. Really? Yeah. So is it enough at a level where Port Moody would consider something like the empty homes tax like they've done in Vancouver? You know, we've talked about it and there, we need to do some more digging to find out what, you know, obviously this is sort of highlighted one of the main reasons why you might have empty homes, but we don't know all of the reasons. So yes, it's certainly something we've talked about. Um, we're sort of going at it from the the point of view that any of the development that comes into Port Moody is going to be addressing uh, the issues and the needs of our community, i.e. more family, more affordable, right. more rental stock. What does it cost to buy a house in Port Moody? Uh, the average home is $1 million. In Port Moody? Yes. Can you believe that when you say that number? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, when I started <laughs> in Port Moody, uh, like you mentioned earlier, since 1996, um, when I first became a counselor, I think the average home price was $300,000. Just 20 years ago? Yes. That's unreal. Yeah. I, and it's just staggering, the, uh, the change. And what about growth issues as well in Port Moody? Is there a lot of pressure right now to build more, do more? Well, yeah, I mean, Port Moody is kind of in this unique situation where we took a position in, I think, around um, 2010, um, before we had, uh, before we would allow any more growth, we needed. We decided that we needed to see um, rapid transit come to the to the community. So between 2011 and 2015, there was virtually no growth in Port Moody. In fact, uh, we reduced by slightly five um, percent or something like that. So our population actually has really? not increased. Yes, but. Um, I'm not so sure that that decision was the right one for the region because, you know, the the affordability crisis and the housing uh, availability crisis was growing yeah, uh, during that, pressure, that time. Yeah. Exactly. And then so communities like Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam, Maple Ridge did not take the same position as us and they grew exponentially by, you know, over Port Moody. Encroaching so, right around you, right? Right. So in uh, east of us, really. So we've got, you know, we had 500 new residents, no new homes, 
built virtually not in any ways um, between during that five year period but um, those cumulative growth from the east of us was over twenty two thousand so you you 've got an increase of twenty two thousand residents and you know in the northeast sector there 's really only one way to get west um, if you 're not taking the freeway you 're coming through port Moody yeah. so um, people have this idea that we've that we've got this massive overgrowth and we really don't we've got we've actually um put a policy in place and you know the the jury's out as to whether or not that was the right decision to make but moving you know at, at today we have um skytrain we've got there's a billion dollar infrastructure that's been planted into port moody we've got two stations p- potentially three and so we're really focusing on um transit-oriented development as our first priority, you know, is that's a way to achieve long-term sustainability. It's a way to reduce greenhouse gases. And so we're, we're looking at that as one of our priorities right now. And uh, on the side of that, you are an entrepreneur. You run your own <laughs> business. How long have you been running that company for? So um, the, the company started in 2014, or no, 2013. Yeah. Wow. So and and so and it, it was, grew out of a love of making pies because that's that's what you do, right? Yeah, you make I, pies. I, yeah. I had always dreamed that I would have a pie shop. It's a nice dream. Yeah, <laughs> and you know you can just sort of relax and make your pies. And it, actually, the reality was a lot different than that because it's a business, so <laughs> it required a, a lot more uh, full time attention than I was able to give, especially since being on council. So um, subsequent to that, I still have the company. It's an online company, so I I bake my pies, I make my pastry. Um, by myself, like everything is homemade, and um, it's an online company, so you can order online. I want to do. I want to take a look at this right now. What is it? Sweetandsavorypie.com? Yes, <laughs> I'm going to look at this. Yeah. But you've had to put a hiatus on this. Do you miss it? Do you miss kind of? Yeah, baking? of course. I miss. I miss the. I miss getting covered in flour. <laughs> I find making to be really therapeutic though, like it very is, relaxing. It is. It's totally relaxing for me. And I, I just sort of zone out and I'm rolling out my pastry and I you know, and I love making um interesting pies for people. I, I've I developed all sorts of new recipes. Like I've got a haggis and uh, tabby pie. I've got a roast beef and Yorkshire pudding pie. Delish. Turkey dinner pies. And then all oh. sorts of sweet pies, right? So Yeah, you've got a chocolate peanut butter cream pie, oh, which sounds so delicious. Yeah. And a, oh, another, what was the other one that sounded really good to me? The antioxidant pie mm-hmm. sounds good. That's a popular one, for I'll sure. I'll bet. Yeah, lemon meringue, which is my favorite. Key yeah. lime, also my favorite. Uh, do you, yeah, that would be something that you would really miss doing. You must have a ton of pies in your freezer. I've had to put my my pie um, my pie dreams on hold for the next couple of months, um, but I'll be back at it in July. Sweetandsavorypie.com if you want to check that out, because Megan Lottie <laughs> will plug. be back at it maybe in the fall. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned climate change there as well, yeah. one of the targets for Port Moody. Why is that so important then in Port Moody? Well, I mean, for me personally, it's 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 a passion. I have a passion around that that issue, and and so. Um, last year, actually, or actually, I guess it was the fall of 2017, I um, brought forward a motion to council to form um, the first of its kind in BC, uh, a standing committee of council, um, the Climate Action Committee. Right. So through that, um, last year, we directed um, our, uh, through through council, we directed that committee to start working on a climate action plan. And... Um, that that plan is supposed to be uh, it's a strategy document, obviously that that outlines collective measures that we can take uh, in Port Moody to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to mitigate and adapt to climate change. 
And you would say every community can do their part, right? Well, I, I think so. I mean, every, you know, some people say that in the big scheme of things, what we do is not going to matter very much. But I, I believe that everybody, everything that everybody does matters. I tell you, the things that you learn about mayors when you have them sitting here with you on Mayor's Day. For instance, today we have Megan Lottie with us, the acting mayor of Port Moody. And in the commercial break, I learned that not only has she canoed the Balron Lakes, she's also skied around the Balron Lakes. That What? You said several times. No, the, the skiing only happened once. I've, I've canoed it several times. I did the ski. We did the ski trip in the winter one year. We thought it would, would be fun. And what happened, even though you thought it would be fun? It was very cold. Yes. Yeah, and, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a great adventure. We were talking about the northern part of the province, and you said, boy, you really have a love for spending a lot of time up there. Yeah, I do. That's I, nice. I, for years. That, like I said to you earlier, Simi, my... Uh, we couldn't afford to take the kids to Disneyland, so we would take them canoeing. We were we were up there in Nazco and, nice. and the Power and Lakes for every how, summer. How did the kids appreciate that? Well, for the most part, they they grew to love the outdoors. And yeah. my youngest daughter still loves the outdoors, but she absolutely hates canoeing. She hates it. <laughs> so she she was she was the um, unfortunate recipient of that <laughs> exposure as a child. But she learned what she didn't like. I guess so. Yes. Well, we're talking about climate change and how Port Moody is tackling this. And you were saying one of the things that you're really proud of is the fact that you have a sustainability and energy coordinator at the city of Port Moody. And guess what? She's with us today. Introduce us. Who is this? Oh, um, I would like to introduce you to Laura Sampliner. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me today. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, What does this job involve? Like, what do you do exactly? Oh, that's a loaded question. Is it? <laughs> a lot of things. <laughs> um, it's a really exciting position. I um, am thankful that I get to, to touch on a lot of city departments um, on a daily basis. We work with a lot of other um, facilities, transportation, um, our engineering department. We pretty much work with, with everybody, um, which is nice. And we develop programs, policies, initiatives, um, develop plans as well. So it's a, a broad scope, but um, it all focuses on how Port Moody is going to tackle climate change. So like, can you give me some examples of how this would work, like how this would impact people's everyday lives? Sure. Um, One example that we just completed is in February of this year, we updated our zoning bylaw to require electric vehicle infrastructure charging in new developments. So now going forward, everyone um, who who builds a new uh, development in Port Moody will have to have uh, electric vehicle charging, which makes it easier for people to drive electric vehicles and, and purchase them. That sounds pretty straightforward, right? Is it? Are these kind of things that other communities are doing as well? Is Port Moody playing catch up at all in some of this stuff? Some, some are. Yeah. Some are doing it, and some are playing catch up, and some have already done it. I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it differs in each community, but um, we're all trying to achieve the same thing. So we're just at different phases. Okay. So what's your ultimate goal here? Like, what would you like to see happen? What's the what's that big mountain you have to climb here? Oh well, the, the climate change mountain is large. <laughs> uh, we have a long way to go, but ideally, um, we'd like to come out with a with a climate action plan that really speaks to our community, um, our, our city operations as well, and really tackles um, our greenhouse gas emissions as well as preparing for any of the climate changes that are expected to come in the future. So right. setting us up for success in the future, despite all the changes that are coming. And Megan, you talked about how with Port Moody, a, a lot of it is people go, driving through Port Moody, right, or coming through Port Moody. Lots of traffic as well. Is that one of the challenges then, how to make it more walkable for people? Certainly. Um, with our transportation master plan, we, we identified ped- uh, pedestrian accessibility, bicycling routes as a priority for sure. But what Laura's, what Laura's talking about, I think, um, is the, the, the fact that uh, we're trying to reduce greenhouse gases. But I mean, greenhouse gases can be reduced in other ways 
in addition to removing cars off the road, right? right. Um, our, so we're, we're looking for to create uh, buildings that provide zero emissions, for instance. And when we talk about uh, mitigation um, in regards to c- the climate change that's coming, we are a seaside city. We, we, so sea level rise is going to be an issue for us. And so we need to come up with tactics and uh, strategies on how we will move forward um, and how we're going to mitigate right. that from, from affecting the transportation network that we have in the city already and, and our, also our infrastructure. Right. And you're also, you're going, you want the public to have input on this as well. Is oh, that right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. We have an event upcoming at the end of this month. It's uh, May 25th is going to be our first community brainstorming session. And what we're really trying to gather is input from community uh, residents, businesses on what they think that the city should be doing and the community should be doing to tackle climate change and really get a sense of uh, where they're at and and what we as a municipality can do to help them achieve success. Is this the first time that you'll be having a public meeting like this? Yes, it is. Oh, so it's not too much pressure, right? May 25th. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Where is that? Let's get all the information on that. Where is it? How can people find find out more. It will be at this at City Hall, Port Moody City Halls. So it's 100 Newport Drive. Um, it's in our gallery at the first floor there. Uh, we have a web page up, so uh, I believe it's portmoody.ca slash climate action that they can visit and get more information about um, all of our upcoming events. And it's going to be a really interactive event. So we have a movie going on. People can win some compass cards. We have a video station where they can record their climate uh, um what uh, they're doing. Yeah, what, what they're doing or what they hope to see. So it's going to be a more interactive format. Wow, you are really like luring people to this thing, right? <laughs> for, for compass cards. Come on, people will show up for that. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> what kind of a difference has that made, by the way, like the Evergreen Line? Well, I, I believe that it's it's made a tremendous impact on the amount of uh, transit ridership in the in the region, for sure. I mean, yeah. I know that, that that's gone up exponentially. Um, the Evergreen Line, which is our line, our portion of the line, right. Is um, I think it has had an eight or eight to eleven percent increase in ridership. That's huge, right? Yeah. Probably mm-hmm. up until then, transit probably wasn't an option for a lot of people. Well, I mean, it is. It, it's always been an option, and I, I, I must say that in the last few years, with with the mayor's council and their and the TransLink's priority to try and create better connectivity, there has been an increase in shuttles and buses, and we do. But you know, Port Moody is is a hilly town. Yes. And um, so there are some areas that aren't as readily accessible by transit. So having the SkyTrain there has certainly made a huge difference for, for, for the I would community. Imagine, yeah. yeah. Well, Laura, thank you very much for joining us to tell us all about that. Once again, when is that event? It's May 25th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at uh, City Hall. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks so much for that. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to talk a lot more with our co-host today, who is Megan Lottie, the acting mayor of Port Moody. Uh, we're going to talk about beer as well, because <laughs> since when did Port Moody, be, I had I only recently learned this because I'm not a drinker, but it, everybody thinks now beer and Port Moody. How did that happen? Well, I mean, we, we have the, the the best, um, what we call Brewer's Row, um, I would say probably in the province. It's like a mini ale trail. Yeah, we, I've it, seen that. Like I looked it, it up. I thought all these people are, it's a destination. Yeah, and it's it's an economic driver for the community. So we're like, this didn't happen by accident or maybe it did. I'm not sure. But it, there's it's just one of those things that's just grown. And um, we're really uh, excited yeah. to see it come in. And, and the, the sort of the spinoffs on that have been an increase in um, not only tourist, tourism, but we've had some new restaurants pop up in Port Moody and the, you know, well, the yeah, food you truck. you got to eat if you're going to drink, right? right? And the, sort of the food truck culture has come to Port Moody. So we're, you know, it's a have real to, happening place. It sure sounds like it. I'm going to have to come out and visit. Yeah, just take the SkyTrain. I think I might actually do that. It's estimated the $5 billion dollars was laundered through real estate transactions. The panel estimates 
that money laundering is responsible for increasing BC real estate prices by about 5%. And remember, that's an average across the province, so certainly in areas where you would see more money laundering activity and higher prices have housing, you would have seen a higher escalation. It's very clear that money laundering hurts people, it hurts our communities, and it hurts our economy. That is Finance Minister Carol James uh, about an hour or so ago outlining the extent to which the government says money laundering is having a huge impact on our province. Those two reports that were released today, uh, the one by Maureen Maloney and by Dr. Peter German, something like 500 pages in total. So yeah, there's some heavy reading going on right now. Uh, So joining us to talk more about this is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Well, man, I'm going through this uh, big time, Simi. It's a lot of things to wade through in these bombshell reports, I can tell you. Yeah, I, can, I, I was skimming through some of the recommendations in the Maloney report there for sure. What strikes you, like just from what you've seen so far, what do you just can't believe that you've read? Well, just the amount of cash transactions that have been going on for years uh, in, the, in the real estate market. I mean, what was really new today was some of the real estate uh, information, the staggering amount of dollars that flow through that sector uh, in terms of money laundering. $5 billion last year alone, which is actually up from about $6 billion the year before. It's, it had gone up, not down. And uh, again, 20% of all, uh, roughly 20% of all residences were purchased using a cash model. So this is basically the two problems uncovered by, the, by Peter German here is that it's, there's opaque ownership structures where it's really hard to figure out who the owner is and how they bought the home. And the second thing is um, uh, the amount of cash that is yeah. sent into the system is moved around continuously uh, to be laundered and to purchase more and more real estate. And, and again, Peter German's reports are rather masterful. In he's been criticized because he doesn't name names, but he says that's not his job. But he does provide some cr- incredibly good anecdotal information of how we got to this situation. He's got he's got some examples where uh, a student was a service address at a, at a rented office outside BC, bought fifteen properties, uh, fifteen Unreal. condos for three million dollars, and, and right now they have a combined value of eleven million dollars. That's just one student. Uh, self-described homemakers. Uh, he, he says one between 2004 and 07, a homemaker went on two buying sprees, buying a dozen downtown row houses for $4 million, which are now worth $15 million. So these are, there are 33,000 transactions last year that were involved students, homemakers, or unemployed people. That's what they listed on their documents. And, and the, the problem is that we're just not tracking this information. People right. aren't reporting these transactions. Uh, they uncovered a lot of willful blindness, I think, and a lot of uh, holes in the system that do not provide uh, tracking of d- data, uh, do not provide uh, reporting of, uh, of cash transactions, do not re- uh, don't require the onus on people to basically be honest. And right. as a result, you've got five billion dollars moving through the largely metro Van- uh, metro Vancouver real estate market in one year alone. That is crazy. Now, Keith, I also have uh, acting mayor from Port Moody, Megan Lottie, here with me, and she's got some questions for you as well. Well, just one in particular. Um, I'm wondering as you're skimming through the documents, um, you talk about these these cash transactions that have been going on for years. Any idea of how far back this goes? Well, it goes. They, they've only gone back a, a few years, and I think they haven't got the table in front of me, but I think it, it really was hovering around $6 billion several years ago. Um, I don't think, again, it's, as Simi said off the top, it's about 500 pages. We've yeah, gone through yeah. the executive summaries, and we've had technical briefings from both the authors, Peter German and Maureen Maloney. Uh, there was one reference in the report I saw that there was some stuff going on 
in the mid-1990s, uh, when Hong Kong reverted to the, uh, for, in terms of... Oh, uh, in 1997, status, yeah. Yeah, 1997, the People's Republic of China. He flagged that as another time when there was a lot of suspicious activity, as a lot of uh, people were trying to move money out of Hong Kong, and it was landing in Vancouver, similarly potentially gaming the real estate system back then as well. Wow. So what about the lawyers? Uh, I understand as well there was some mention made of yes. a number of lawyers who were helping to facilitate these transactions. Yeah, so the lawyers, again, there's no names in here, but there's two that are signaled out for little seats. And one is the lawyers, some lawyers, uh, for not reporting certain information that you would think should be reported. Uh, the uh, mention of the Law Society getting involved here, and again, I think Maureen Maloney's recommendations is a subtle that touch on the legal profession as well. Uh, so, again, it all comes down to reporting information and reporting suspicious transactions and making sure that whatever documents you use are not opaque, but they're actually clear. And uh, that is not just something a lawyer can understand. Right. It's something that, uh, that regulators should be able to be able to have their hands on in terms of um, spotting something and taking steps to ensure something untoward is not going on. The other thing that gets better institution that gets a, a sort of a slap on the wrist here is FinTrack, which is a federal financial transaction analysis um, a unit, for not being more proactive and also for not sharing information with other regulatory agencies. It's interesting, Maureen Maloney's uh, report contains about 29 recommendations. About one-third of them basically involve getting the VC government to get more, or calling on Ottawa, mm-hmm. to become more proactive in working with the provinces to stamp this out because it's $7.4 billion, $7.4 billion in BC last year. Uh, Maloney and German put the estimate federally at almost $50 billion. Whoa. So this is not a BC problem. Yeah, I, I, it goes right across the country, and they're calling on Ottawa to get take big steps to work with the provinces to get to the bottom of it. I have a feeling now, given the distractions of the Trudeau government on a number of fronts, whether or not this we're going to see much traction on that front uh, anytime soon. And certainly, the Attorney General David Eby didn't sound totally optimistic that we're going to get Ottawa's involvement on this in a, in a short time frame. Well, I mean, one. Thank you. Yeah, that's that was that actually is a good segue into one of the questions that I had, which was, um, I guess, uh, Attorney General Eby mentioned during his press conference that there were no agencies, or what was identified that was that there were no agencies or resources available to address this specifically in British mm-hmm. Columbia, and then, mm-hmm. but that we do have the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada, as you mentioned, FinTrack. Um, but they're obviously not doing a good enough job. So if the Canadian government or the federal government is is not sort of stepping up in this, uh, is there? I immediately thought that we're going to have um, to you find the resources yeah. exactly in BC, at least for BC to be able to to uh, track this and and monitor it. Yeah, is there any sign of that might happen? Well, there's a number of steps that uh, Maureen Maloney is calling on the province to take, and. Uh, the, they've already started on the landowner transparency mm-hmm. registry. Uh, she wants that done as quickly as possible. And, th- and there are a number of things I think uh, David Eve and Carol James government can take here to, ma- to basically certainly allow uh, more public um, the, the open flow of information and require more uh, things to be documented and, and to be done so in a public fashion. So regulators will have ready access to uh, to a number of financial transactions, you know, they, they, she's calling them to replace the Mortgage Broker Act with a modern, right. you know, more regular, uh, more modern uh, approach to to things. Uh, you know, everything from discussion papers and studies to uh, 
uh, just huh. looking over some of them, um, should take the steps necessary to place the onus for compliance with the real estate uh, sector uh, on individual real estate licensees. So she's basically saying the province has the power to do stuff with the legal profession and with the realtor profession in the real estate industry. The actual criminal stuff is, again, largely a federal uh, jurisdiction, jurisdictional matter, and that may take some time to, uh, to deal right. with there. But in terms of the, the buying and selling, uh, the province has direct control of that, and I think you will see, well, we've already seen some action from this government on that front, and now there's a, a, a path forward charted by Maureen Maloney of where they should go next. And uh, Carol James has not said yet which she's going to adopt all these uh, recommendations. But on the face of it, they seem pretty sensible. But we're near the end of the legislative session. There's no time to draw up a lot of these things into, into bills yet. So if anything, we're probably looking at the fall right. for uh, the guts of this report to be implemented in terms of regulatory or, or legal changes. On the political front here, though, Keith, I thought it was interesting that they chose the year 2018. I mean, that was the NDP government were in power that year. That's the year that they looked at, the, if they'd gone to 2016, 2015, the numbers would have been higher. The housing market was crazy at that time. It would, yes, it, 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 conceivably, yes, it is interesting. I mean, this is the data. They wanted to make this as modern as possible, most up-to-date as possible, to show that this is a, an ongoing problem and that uh, I, think, I think they sort of took a bit of the politics out of this because yeah. they didn't focus on the big, bad liberals. It was, you know, uh, it did occur under the liberals, of course, uh, to still huge, staggering amounts. But they decided to take a look at this year, this one particular, and focused on the anecdotal information uh, coming from that year. 33,000, as I said, 33,000 homes were purchased by people who were either students or homemakers or unemployed people. And we're talking homes. We're not talking $100,000 homes. We're talking, you know, multi-million dollar homes uh, that in some cases were resold several times. So so these are two really good reports. And I congratulate Peter German as I decided I said to him, I said, you know, Vaughn Palmer and I have been over here forever, and we've read a lot of reports over the years. I'll bet. And I have to say his reports really stand out because of their sort of exhaustive detail in, from an anecdotal fashion that people can relate to of just what's going on out there without getting too technical or bogged down in the sort of the financial details. It's about real-life stories of, you know, a 20-year-old kid who doesn't even live in B.C. buying a $3 million home. How does that happen? And using cash to do it. Oh. Well, I know what I'm going to be reading tonight. Uh, Keith, thank you for your time on this today. Okay, bye-bye. That's Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, who, by the way, you can see all afternoon on BC One, and as well, uh, you can catch his analysis on this on the NewsHour and right here, of course, on CKNW throughout the afternoon. Uh, But I'm definitely going to be reading this tonight for sure. Doesn't it pique your interest as well? It does, and it really makes me think about um, the bigger picture, and maybe that, uh, you know, this is about what's happening with the proceeds of crime but how is that what is what's the crime to the money like, yeah and what's ha- it's what's happening to the money but how is that money landing here in the first place and where's I, it coming I, from exactly how's i heard it being generated well i heard mr eb um re- oh, sort of refer the to the opioid crisis and i'm wondering like that would be the purpose of a, of a public inquiry to look at that bigger yeah envelope of issue so true you know we might have to change your title I mean, it's like acting mayor of Port Moody, but we might have to say like, you know, CKNW reporter, CKNW yeah. host, because you're diving right in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm multi, multi-dimensional. multi You really are. She's got notes. You should see. She's got all these notes in front of her. She's been asking <laughs> questions. We've got we've got David Eby, the attorney general, coming up just after 1.30 to talk more about, uh, boy, the extensive amount of information that has been released today. 500 pages worth of reports looking at money laundering in this province. And I know you've got questions for him already, right? Like, what would you like to know? Well, I mean, he did mention during 
during his uh, press press conference the uh, around the he mentioned the opioid crisis and i and sort of it got me thinking that the bigger picture is you've got all this money that's been laundered all these proceeds of crime but what are the crimes that they're associated with and how, how did, did that get the money how did they get the money exactly where's the money coming from and and how is how is this ending up on our doorsteps because it's a bigger issue it's like a whole um, connected cycle of criminal activity. And the way it's being described to us is only half the cycle. It's yeah. the, at the point where they launder the money. So is the money being generated here? Uh, and if so, is that the, the drug industry? Is that the yeah. opioid overdose crisis? Is um, that all of that? There has been uh, discussion about that. You know, you've heard anecdotally that, there, that that is a connection, but I'd like to see if they can actually connect the dots. And, you know, yeah. it might help us in being able to to um, address the opioid crisis that we're facing as well. Yeah, that's so true. Is that an issue in Port Moody? Well, it's an issue everywhere. I mean, it's, it's a direct, like, there's, there's all sorts of um, social issues connected to, to this crisis. Um, it, it's hit me personally and my family, and, and it's, um, I think everybody in the Lower Mainland is affected in some way or another. I think there's also a level of frustration with it, too. It's like, how do you, how do you deal with it? How do you make people aware of what's going on, of the risks that they're taking if well, they are drug users? I mean, it's, it, and then you're un, unrolling the, the, the whole issue around um, decisions that were made, you know, some, some years ago, 15 or so years ago, to, to close down mental health facilities and, and driving yeah. people out into the streets and um, the, the behavior that's started there and the addictions that started from that that were a result of that. So there's so much, um, there's so much interrelated yeah. there, you know, homelessness. And it's just, it's a huge problem for it, everyone. And just because it's Mayor's Day doesn't mean that the news stops. In fact, it's actually been quite ramped up today with the release of these two reports into money laundering in the province. So just to sum up some of what we learned from that today, these two reports showed us that $7.4 billion was laundered through BC casinos, real estate and luxury cars just in the year 2018. Five billion of that laundered through real estate. And the report says that artificially drove up the price of homes in BC by about 5%. That's 5% overall in all of BC. Cash buys of real estate accounted for somewhere between 17 to 21% of all real estate transactions. I mean, these are huge numbers, right? Uh, something like 33,000 straw buyers, including students and homemakers and people who list their occupation as unemployed, managed to purchase, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of property. We wanted to talk more about this now. So David Eby joins us, the Attorney General. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Sammy. These are some pretty big numbers, uh, first of all. Uh, and given that you just, you know, Peter German in particular was able to find it so quickly, did that surprise you? Well, obviously, very startling numbers. This number uh, came from a team, Maureen Maloney, uh, and uh, some international experts, economists, uh, looking at uh, our economy and the real estate market. Uh, a startling number, I think, for a lot of people, uh, knowing that there was certainly suspicious activity taking place in our real estate market, but really uh, trying to wrap our heads around the scale, the scale and scope of this problem. And why did you look at just 2018? Why pick that year? Why not go further back, like when the market was really going crazy? Well, they chose that year, I guess, as the most recent year. I don't know. Um, the, the Ministry of Finance uh, uh, commissioned that report and worked with these experts. Uh, for our ministry's uh, piece, uh, Peter German uh, took a team and combed through uh, open public data sources like uh, BC Assessment and, uh, and the Land Title Office uh, records 
and uh, their findings, uh, some of those numbers that you put out there, but also, you know, hundreds of homes where uh, they had multiple mortgages uh, uh, rapidly uh, established and discharged. Uh, one home had 29 mortgages back-to-back discharged and established on the property. Uh, they found a home in the Gulf Islands linked to a bank fraud, an alleged bank fraud in India. Uh, it was just startling what they were able to find with basic open source data of some of these examples. Now, Mr. Abey, I have with me today Megan Lottie, who's the acting mayor of Port Moody. We're doing our Mayor's Day today, and she has some questions for you as well. Please shoot, Your Worship. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you have any idea around, like you mentioned during your press release that um, there really isn't an agency or, or the resources available to address this specifically in British Columbia. I'm, I'm wondering what to, to what extent that you feel that um, FinTrack um, is going to be part of the solution moving forward or if, if there's going to be a different approach? Yeah, they're, a, they're definitely a big part of the potential solution. And unfortunately, I, I fear they've been part of the problem. Ah. And I say part of the problem because uh, at the, in the casinos, for example, uh, a full answer and defense to concerns that people raised about the bulk cash transactions that were coming in was, look, we're filling out all this paperwork and we're sending it into FinTrack. So if there was some kind of issue, obviously someone would be acting on it. Uh, and what we found out was that uh, there was nobody to it. act on that information. And so it became almost a shield uh, to, to real action being taken. But they are a critical piece, and, and their information used properly by dedicated law enforcement can make a real difference. So if, if uh, who, the, is it the federal government that oversees this organization? Yes, that's right. And, and federal RCMP, uh, we hope, would be a key part of this. But the province isn't waiting uh, for the feds to ramp up policing. We're working with the RCMP and municipal forces right now to, to work on an integrated policing unit for money laundering that's provincial, uh, because we really feel like we need to take action on this quite urgently. Megan also made an excellent point that we were discussing this amongst ourselves. Where is this money coming from? Like, where is all of this money that is being laundered generated? Is this generated here? Is it the drug industry? Like, where is it? Well, Dr. German's first report linked a lot of the profits of uh, the opioid uh, sales that have been taking place linked to the opioid epidemic and the overdose epidemic that we're facing here in British Columbia. Um, But uh, in the reports today, uh, the authors uh, didn't uh, go into detail, and and I don't believe they were able to really, to say uh, where all of this money is coming from. But we do know that uh, one of the largest cartels in Mexico, the Sinalina cartel, has been active in British Columbia. Uh, we know this through the testimony of a drug enforcement agent in the United States. We know that uh, organized crime uh, from Asia and the Middle East has been active, uh, very active in British Columbia. Uh, these proceeds could be coming from anywhere around the world. Uh, a wire transfer into a lawyer's trust account, Dr. German said today, uh, turns that money into ones and zeros and then into real estate in BC. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily even have to be BC-based crime. That's another question we had to you about the lawyers. That was specifically mentioned today. What can be done to see that if lawyers are seeing this, they obviously they are, it's crossing their deaths. What repercussions are there or consequences do they have for going along with this? Well, Dr. German certainly had some strong words for the Law law Society today about uh, their public responsibility, and I know that the Law uh, Society takes that really seriously. Uh, My uh, message to the Law Society as well has been, look, at some point there will be a lawyer uh, implicated in a string of suspicious real estate transactions or otherwise, and, and it it, it better be the law society uh, that finds and assists with the prosecution of that lawyer as opposed to somebody else finding out because there's a lot of concern about the fact that uh, lawyers don't report to FinTrack. But as I said, really, um, reporting to FinTrack hasn't proven to be much of a deterrent. So uh, really, we do need the law society to be, and I know they accept their role to be, uh, uh, prioritizing uh, their response to this, this very serious issue we face in the province.
Do you expect to get any pushback on this from areas like, you know, the legal society or, or from the real estate industry? Because a lot of this onus from the report is going to go on them for monitoring this. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who have been profiting from this activity, whether it's in our real estate market, casinos, uh, uh, luxury cars. Uh, and uh, I have to say, you know, we've uh, we've definitely dented the profits of casino operators in British Columbia with our changes, uh, but they have been supportive of the changes. Uh, I know the new car dealers have spoken out in support of uh, being good partners on this. Uh, and I'm hopeful that the real estate industry, we've seen it through real estate agents, uh, mortgage brokers, uh, appraisers, notaries coming together to say, look, we want to be proactive on this. Uh, we're all going to have to work together to deal with this. I don't doubt that there will be people out there saying, oh, it's not a very big number or, uh, you know, it's not, it's nothing we can do anything about anyway. Uh, it's just something that happens in society. And it's not, you know, uh, uh, criminal activity, fraudulent activity, tax avoidance and evasion, distorting a whole provincial economy is not normal and we need to take action on it. Megan, you want to ask a question? No, I, I definitely agree. This is this is not no small story. This is a huge story and it affects us in so many different ways. I'm wondering if you um, have any thoughts on, there has been a lot said about whether or not there should be a public inquiry on this and whether or not you think that that would serve a purpose in maybe drawing some of those, all of the players into the same story. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of frustration uh, in the public around accountability, who knew what, when, uh, who's involved in this kind of activity, and so on. Uh, the decision about whether or not to go to a public inquiry is in front of cabinet, and I expect uh, that the government will have an announcement about that very soon. Uh, and uh, certainly we're hearing uh, from people that they would like to hear a decision on that uh, uh, very quickly, because uh, the focus of government to date has really been on identifying exactly what's happening in the market and taking action to stop it. That's why you see the finance minister moving into this uh, Landowner Transparency Act, an open registry of Mm -hmm. the declared human owner of each property, which will be a great assistance to law enforcement uh, as well as tax authorities and identifying where money comes from in our real estate market. So do you think, Mr. Eby, then a year from now with some of these legislative changes coming up this fall, will it be a different picture in B.C.? Um, I think that the Landowner Transparency Act and then the corporate registry requiring declaration of who the actual owner of the company is uh, has the potential to be transformative in our uh, real estate market. I know there are a lot of other jurisdictions that are interested in what we're doing here and uh, because it will be world-leading. And uh, the tie-in of significant penalties for false declarations and the information uh, collected through the speculation tax in the hottest markets where we'll be able to identify people who are buying real estate with no apparent source of income and are the declared owners on these properties, but there's no apparent way that they could have gotten the money to buy those properties. Uh, This is all going to be critically important to law enforcement and tax authorities. All right, Minister Eby, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is David Eby, the Attorney General, giving us a little more information on the two reports. 500 pages. Are you going to read this, Megan? Um, Probably not the whole thing, but I, (laughs) I mean, it certainly opens up that whole... It makes me start thinking that you know it's we're we're really only dealing with part of the yeah. part of the problem.